Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Good evening, everyone. We're ready to get started. Thank you all so much for being here this evening. Uh, my name is Edward Wolcher. I'm the Community Programs Curator here at Town Hall Seattle, and on behalf of Town Hall and our friends at the University Bookstore, who are set up in the lobby right over here, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this evening's event with Jane Alexander in conversation with Town Hall's own Katie Sewell. Jane Alexander is an actor, environmental advocate, and former chairperson of the National Endowment for the Arts, a celebrated actress of stage and screen, appearing in over 70 films, including Kramer vs. Kramer, All the President's Men, and The Cider House Rules, in addition to have acted in over 100 plays. She has received multiple accolades for her work, including two Emmys, a Tony, and an Obie Award, and has been nominated for four Academy Awards. She joins us tonight, however, not to discuss her acting, but to reflect upon another great passion of hers, the vastly changing world of wildlife on planet Earth, as outlined in her new book, Wild Things, Wild Places, Adventurous Tales of Wildlife and Conservation on Planet Earth. She will be joined in conversation with Town Hall's own program director, Katie Sewell. Katie's a name you might know from her career as a radio producer and host. For nine years, she was the lead producer of KOW's Weekday with Steve Scher. She's also worked on Radio Lab, a Prairie Home Companion, and currently co-hosts and produces the Bittersweet Life podcast at thebittersweetlife.net. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Jane Alexander and Katie Sewell. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming. And thank you, Jane, for being here. Thank you. This is a wide-ranging book, and I was telling her before we came out here that there's no way we're going to be able to travel as much around the world as she does in this book, but I'm going to try. <laughs> um, it's a book about nature and conservation, but it's also one of the themes I loved about this book was it's also about wonder and amazement. I thought just to put us in the mood, maybe you could tell us a story of a moment when you were out in one of these many places around the world you've been when you felt a moment of connection or wonder? Oh, gosh. Well, the one that immediately comes to mind, and you have to, I'm going to preface this by telling you all that I'm an avid birder, and I have been for decades and decades. So my husband and I were with uh, the great ornithologist George Archibald, who helped bring the whooping crane back from extinction and founded the International Crane Foundation. We were with George in Bhutan, a few years ago to look at what was happening with the black-necked cranes. But the bird I most wanted to see when I was in Bhutan was the Manal pheasant. Now, there's a lot of Himalayan pheasants who are rather exotic. I mean, they're exotic looking in their feathers. And our guide, he, she, said, well, I'm not promising anything. So we saw the black-necked cranes, which were extraordinary because they're almost five and a half feet tall. And they make this incredible journey every winter across the Himalayas in Tibet and come down in the Pobjika Valley and a few other places in Bhutan. And when they come down, they spiral down, making whistles and clangs like bells with their voices to land in the valley floor. So that was stunning to begin with. Well, one day, he, she said, well, anybody who wants to get up at about four in the morning, and we're going to travel up to 11,000 feet, may see a Manal pheasant. <gasps> so <laughs> I was like, my heart was in my mouth. And <laughs> there were a few of us who, who get, climbed into the, the little van, and we, 
We went up in a steaming morning. The Bhutan is absolutely beautiful. The grasses were all covered with little crystals of ice in the cold. And we went up and up and up and up till we came to this very little monastery at 11,000 feet. And the red roofs were just being hit with the early morning sunlight. And it was radiant, it was so beautiful. Before we got out of the van, I saw an old monk about 40 feet away, feeding not one, not two, but 11 monal pheasants. <laughs> two males and the rest were hens. So a few of us climbed up on a little bank above that little tiny courtyard and looked down and I had my Nikon at the ready and what should happen? But this male Manal leaps up on the bank, comes right over there with a couple of hens following him, walks right into a ray of sunlight. I got this incredible shot with my Nikon, then I mm -hmm. put the camera down, and he walked right into my shadow. I could hardly speak. I thought it was the most wondrous thing that ever happened to me in my bird life, ever. And it was. And then he turned around and just walked up, and the hens followed, and they went back into the forest. And that's mm. my, my Manal pheasant story. Mm. <laughs> I'm sure there might be one person in here who wouldn't consider themselves a birder. Yes, uh, how many birders do we be. have in the Are audience? Are there a lot of them? Oh, yeah. You can, you can count yourself if you just have a feeder outside, because that's <laughs> what I was saying. That's right. Uh, but for people who don't notice birds, why do you think they should? Why do you notice birds so much? Well, for me, birds are so magical because they can fly. I mean, I always wanted to fly. As a little girl, I wanted to fly, and so I made balsa wood wings and kept jumping off cliffs and never got lift off. So I had to turn to the real thing, you know? And uh, the very first bird I ever caught at age 10 was a house sparrow, but that was so exciting to me, and I held it in my hand and his little heart was beating and I turned it over and I looked at the wings and then I turned it over and I went like that and it went whoo. You know, that's, uh, that's birds for me. They're magic, they're magical. And they are our airscape species. And just to get into a conservation note, there are species and the great ecologist Tom Lovejoy says, if we save the birds, we probably solve most of the problems in the world. And the reason he says that is because birds do travel over areas. They, they need clean air. They need clean water. If they need that, we will, by default, get it as well. You also tell this story, one of the most vivid stories that I thought you told in the book was about jumping into the water that's full of sharks. <laughs> All right. Care to share one <laughs> I more? I will share that one too. <laughs> Thank you, Katie. Um, these are all my real adventure stories, right? Uh, well, when my grandchildren turned 12, I started taking them whenever, uh, wherever they wanted to go in the world. Pretty nice, huh? Not a bad I'd save perk. up for that. And um, the, the two girls, cousins, Vita and Isabel, wanted to go to the Galapagos. I thought, great choice. And so we went there, and one day, one of the guides said, Whoever wants to go swimming with sharks in the ocean is welcome. Well, I, I've been terrified of sharks ever since I saw Jaws. <laughs> I'm sure many other people feel the same way. 
I mean, that scene with that woman being pulled under at night is indelible in my memory. And I was a girl who grew up on, in the summers in Nantucket Island, right on the ocean. And we would always swim at night before Jaws. <laughs> the, the phosphorescence, to swim in a line of phosphorescent in the moonlight was one of the great wonders of my childhood. And by the time Jaws came out, it was long after childhood. But I got terrified after that moment, and so did most of my family. And nobody went in the water at night again after Jaws. So anyway, when we got to the Galap Galapagos, I said, well, you know, I'm going to go in the Zodiac, and I'm going to get suited up for this. But whether I'll go in the water or not, I don't know. So our guide happened to be a beautiful young Ecuadorian woman. When we got to the deep ocean part that she wanted us to go over, she said, OK, here we are. Now everybody jump in. Well, she had forgotten her wetsuit and her, her diving equipment back at the ship. Everybody's kind of fiddling, not knowing what to do. And I thought, well, I'm the oldest. I have the least to lose. So, so I went in, and I had a snorkel. And I put my mask down, and I would have gasped but for the snorkel in my mouth. There must have been 50 sharks down there. But they weren't even paying any attention to me at all. I went down, I would then would hold the breath and go down with the snorkel, and they were swimming by me. There were white-tipped sharks, black-tipped sharks, Galapagos sharks, and at the bottom, about 30 feet down, hammerheads. Now, my diving buddy, who had just been assigned to me, was <laughs> a young gal, maybe just out of her teens. Suddenly, she leaves me, and she dives right down to the hammerheads, and she's stroking their head. And I'm like, whoa, what is this? And she comes back, and she says, I love hammerheads. And so you want to know something? Then we just swam with those sharks for the better part of the hour, and we got to the other side where the zodiac was waiting for us, further down the big rock face. And what drove us from the water was not sharks, but tiny little jellyfish that bit everybody like mosquitoes in the water. And we all were like screaming, ah, get us out of here. <laughs> so after that, I never feared sharks again. I had a wonderful, wonderful experience. I started to read up about them all the time. I started to read about how they were being finned, you know, for shark fin soup, which has really put a huge dent in the shark population of the world and has really uh, decimated the great white sharks for, out of fear, mostly. People fear them. The great whites are down to like 3% of what they used to be. And they breed very, very slowly. Mm -hmm. You know, the female great white shark doesn't begin to breed until she's about 18 years old. And they only got like four pups a year. And the same with the mako and the poor beagle, all of which are endangered species today. Anyway, that's my shark story. Yeah, it's quite a story. Um, one of the first things that you write in the book, in the very opening, you say, we lost wonder. We no longer consider the unique and living creatures of the planet as sacred and special like ourselves. When do you think we lost that? Well, I don't know. I think, I think it probably happened when we, we became agricultural, what, 12,000 years ago? Mm -hmm. I don't know. 
I'm just talking about modern day man. I think mm -hmm. it has to do with concrete and glass and all living in urban environments where we don't have the opportunity to experience wilderness. You have it a lot more here in the West Coast, I might say, than a lot of other places. I love the Pacific Northwest. If I were 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, I'd move here in a shot. It's just so gorgeous. But I also mean a sense of spirituality about creatures other than ourselves. When you begin to explore not just our own Native American culture, but you begin to go down and visit clans or tribes in Central and South America, as I have, or in other parts of the world where they still, they still give some kind of spirituality and essence to the other animals. For example, the Maya people that I studied for quite a long time in um, Central America, and Mexico in particular, the Mayan branch of life didn't have human beings at the top. It's a branch that has all kinds of animals. And what happened with us was we put man at the top and then we had dominance over all the creatures. And that's when I think we really began to lose that wonder that I'm talking about. Yeah, you describe a moment, too, with your friend, your jaguar expert friend, Alan Rabinowitz, with the spiritual connection that he felt when he was in the jungle, even to the point where he would occasionally feel like he could just hear his name among the creatures. That kind of spiritual connection to nature, do you think... I mean, you sort of indicate in the book that without nature, it's very difficult for humans to be spiritual, to be fully spiritual human beings. Mm -hmm. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Everything in the natural world, we depend on absolutely everything, natural resources for all, everything in life. Clothing, food, lithium batteries, you name it. And what we need is, is to go back to a respect for that. It's... We, yes, do we take those things and make something else out of them? Yes, that's what the genius of, of Homo sapiens, modern-day man, is that we make things, and we make things in an extraordinary way, but we always make them from something that is out in the natural world. Was the first time you encountered a jaguar, would you consider that a spiritual experience? Whew. Yes, well, <laughs> Alan Rabinowitz was a young man when I went down to Belize, to visit him. He was tracking jaguars in Belize for the Wildlife Conservation Society, which back then was called the New York Zoological Society. I was down there in Belize to do some research because I had written a, a screenplay about a woman tracking jaguars in Belize. I thought it was a great part for me. And so <laughs> I, I went down to see this young man named field biologist who was doing that. And we got along great, and we were tracking them and measuring pug marks and scrapes and all the things that you have to do as a scientist. And I never saw a jaguar the whole time that I was in Belize with them. And Alan only saw about five of them. They're very elusive cats. They're very secretive. They are, of course, mostly solitary except in breeding season. And they're not aggressive to human beings or to most other creatures except as the prey that they wish to take. So I didn't see one then, and I didn't see one in any other journeys back to Mexico or to Belize or anywhere in Central or South America until four years ago 
in the Pantanal. By this time, Allen had become very famous. He's known as the Indiana Jones of field biologists for his intrepid travel all around the world. And he and I, by this time, had traveled together with our, my husband and his wife to Nepal, to Thailand, to many of his field study sites. I didn't go to Myanmar because I was busy in Washington at the time. India, and then finally, he said, come to the Pantanal with me. By this time, he'd founded Panthera, the organization to save the great cats of the world, and he had begun the Jaguar Corridor, which now has 14 countries signed on to keep genetic strength for the Jaguar all through its range. A male Jaguar will travel 500 to 1,000 miles to look for a mate. So you want to keep a genetic, um, and not block off the, the travel sites for those males in particular. We went to the Pantanal. We went into these motorized canoes, and our guide, Mateus, deviated from the others and went up a tributary. This was early morning on a hot summer day. It was 114 degrees, by the way. So the animals in the late early morning, around 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, were not busy tracking anything. And we pulled up, and Mateus cut the motor, and we look up, and there, 30 feet away, on a bank above the river, getting the breeze from the water, was a female jaguar. And she was just looking at us. She looked and looked and looked. She went back to grooming herself. She didn't move. I think it was because it was so hot. She knew we were in the water. We're not going to be too close to her. I started taking pictures with my Nikon. And then I got very uncomfortable because she was looking right at me like native women do when I snap their picture anywhere in the streets. So I put the camera down. I just looked at her. She looked at me and went back to grooming. And I got back to Alan, who was in the lodge, and I just started to cry. I said, that's 35 years later, my jaguar. I think what's so interesting about the jaguar story and the shark story is that if you were talking about it from the outside, if a person didn't hear how you talk about it, and you said, well, I encountered a jaguar, and I was in water with 100 sharks, you know, we would think that what a fearful experience that would be. And instead, it's the opposite. It's not a fearful experience at all. And I wonder how much of the way that man has tried to dominate the wild in general is fear-based. Do you have a sense of that? Yes, but I also think we don't get to know the animals well enough. And I'm going to talk, too, about the tiniest little ones. We tend to walk out, and if there's a bug on the stoop, we'll squash it, rather than giving it, wait a minute, let's give this a chance. Let's just see what that guy's about, or that gal. Mm -hmm. um, and I've learned a lot from field biologists I've, I've been with, and I've been with quite a lot. The book is about my travels with Alan, yes, but also with at least a dozen other mm -hmm. field biologists to different parts of the world. They look at everything. They observe it. I like to say that conservation is an attitude, a spiritual belief, and or a reg regulations. And the attitude is this, just what I was describing. Give the little guy a chance, or the big guy. Let's just see if they're going to hurt us or 
come after us or bite us. Now, I don't have tolerance. If they bite me, I'll bite them back. <laughs> but most of the time, most of the time, they will not hurt you. They will not come near you. The Dalai Lama says all living creatures want to be happy. They have that quotient in them. They also have a quotient of fear. And if you present something that is going to be fearful to them, they will move away. They will run away. And if you present something that is welcoming to them, they will begin to move forward. And I've found that in my own life since I've adopted this attitude. There are wild creatures that, that now come to me. Pretty uncanny. I love how your mother taught you not to be afraid of spiders when you were a kid. <laughs> you picked out all the good ones. Okay. Uh, here, here I am, a little girl. Okay, I was... There's plenty of good stories in this yeah, book. I'm not going to ruin thank them you. Um, I had absolute phobia of spiders. I just scared the bejesus out of me. So one day I'm screaming on the back porch. I'm about seven or eight years old. And my mother comes out, and I remember it was a hot summer day, and she had bare arms, sleeveless dress, and she reached up under the eaves, and she pulled down a big house spider, and she put it on her arm, and I'm sitting there screaming my head <laughs> off, and she, she, this spider crawls up and up over her head and down her back, and that was it. I was not afraid of spiders anymore. What a mom, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about what it actually takes to conserve some of these animals. You've been around so many different conservation, people working toward conservation, but you also worked for the National Endowment of the Arts. And so I wonder <laughs> how your experience in a more political setting sort of set up your understanding for what it would take to do conservation work. My experience with the National Endowment for yeah. the Arts? Oh. Okay, yeah, well, that was a real introduction into, well, it was the culture wars at the time it was called, and a real introduction into what it takes, perseverance, perseverance, first of all, faith that the outcome will be delivered, and a good attitude <laughs> towards the whole thing. Traveling with field biologists, as I did, it was not possible not to see the dire straits that the creatures and the habitats were in. And I watched over the years as pure research science with these men and women became protecting the species over and over again. So how do you do it? They would figure out how do you conserve this landscape, this airscape, this seascape, whatever it is, and the animal in it. What they discovered, first of all, is you have to have the buy-in of the village. So conservation today is about community. Wherever the habitat is that you want to save, you have to have the people who live in and around that area, maybe hunting them, maybe uh, trading them for body parts and so on. You have to begin to talk to them about that and find ways to make a trade with them to protect that species. For example, Lisa Dabek, I traveled with in Papua New Guinea. Lisa is um, a gal who studies the Machis tree kangaroo. And the tree kangaroo is a perfectly wonderful creature. 
that lives in only a few places in Papua New Guinea and some of the other islands around there. And it's about this big. It looks like a big Paddington teddy bear. It's just so, and it's as gentle as a teddy bear. It's just, except it has big, long claws because it climbs up to the, almost the canopy of the trees in the high altitude of Papua New Guinea. And it eats orchids. Is that sweet? So <laughs> you see this adorable furry thing munching on beautiful orchids, and you're like, oh my god. So, but what Lisa had to do in order to get the villagers around where the Machis tree kangaroos lived to stop hunting them because they're very nutritious, you can imagine, eating orchids all the time. Um, and uh, what she had to do was begin to work with the entire village, and that involved not just education about the beautiful kangaroo in their area, but also bring in health care systems for them, bring in more teachers, help them with clothing, help them with everything, their needs, recognize their needs. And yes, if they needed to hunt the Machi street kangaroo for nutrition, then give them a chance to do that in season, but put away a, a protected area where they were not allowed so that the kangaroo had its own area. And by default, as the largest mammal in that area, the wallabies probably are a little bit bigger, but the tree kangaroo then by default is protecting all the other species that live in that area. So that's the way you do conservation today. And Lisa goes back two or three times a year to meet with the villagers, and I was lucky enough to be there when one time when she hadn't been there for six months, and the, the plane put down, and you never saw such people who loved anybody more than they loved Lisa. When she got off that plane, they were just embracing her, the little kids around her legs, kissing her, and it was very heartwarming. Yeah, and I should mention that Lisa's from Seattle. Yes, exactly, uh, Woodland Park Zoo. She works Zoo. at the Woodland Park Zoo. Well, and you can see, there you have, you have that tree kangaroo right in your zoo here. Yep. Yeah. And that's how she discovered it, mm -hmm. right here. It's one of the big conservation projects of our zoo, actually, Yeah, is that project, yeah. I guess a follow-up question I want to ask about that, which you sort of touched on, is the question of poverty. Mm -hmm. Is it, because there's such widespread poverty across the world, it, it does raise the question of like, how much conservation can we actually do when you have millions of people who are just trying to get their day-to-day -day needs met and aren't really able to focus on a bigger picture? Well, they don't want to wipe out the source of their nutrition either. So you're looking at teaching them best practices. That's the same that happened with fishing villages. If you keep dynamiting the fish out of the water, you're not going to have any fish after a while. A lot of it is about education and working with them to help them and to, to let them carry on. They're the ones that are going to make the place sustainable in the long run. And so everybody wants a good world, a beautiful world, a world where we all eat well. And we're not talking about taking away their sustenance. We're just talking about making it possible for all things to live. I mean, we are an apex predator ourselves, so we have to eat too. Mm -hmm. But that's what I think is the best way to, to go about it today. And I've seen it over and over again. I've seen it with Patricia Wright in um, Madagascar, who is one of the lemur experts of the world. She does exactly the same thing in, in every village she goes to. And by the way, Lisa goes to 40 villages. It's not just one. We're talking about 40 villages 
around where the tree kangaroos live. And Patricia Wright goes all around central and south Madagascar for the same reason. Is there a particular creature that if you could dedicate all of your time to uh, working to save that you would choose? Well, it would be a bird. Yeah. <laughs> My spark bird, the bird that really turned me on forever was the wood thrush. You don't have them out here on the west coast, but from central U.S. to the east, the wood thrush is my bird that I would probably study forever. I hate to bring it up, but I was surprised to learn from your book that wildlife trafficking is still the fifth most lucrative business when it comes to illicit trade in yeah. the world. Yes, and when we talk about wildlife trafficking, we're talking about trade in body parts, we're talking about also collecting. Collecting of reptiles in particular and amphibians is rampant. And it's an underground market, not only for food, but for collectors all around the place because a lot of people want to have a little chameleon or gecko or strange frog in their homes. So this is really decimating an awful lot of our reptiles and amphibians. That's just one area of wildlife trafficking. Of course, the trade in body parts you know very well for the great mammals. 50% of our great mammals are in real trouble. Elephants, of course, we all know about. I don't need to tell you that that continues to this day. The good news is that there's an awful lot of technology that is helping suss out where the poachers are and where the elephant herds are and how best to get in there and get those poachers because now it's mafia-like. It's at a very high crime syndicate level, the way they're wiping them out. It needs to be fought with similar tactics, so it is being. We just have to help them. The heavy lifting is being done by the scientists and by the organizations that try to protect these animals, and the way we can help them is by supporting them with signing petitions online, volunteering if you're able to, and helping them financially as well. And as Bill McKibben says, you know, it'll only take four to five percent of the population to make a commitment to do this kind of thing, and then we can turn the tide. We'll have enough force to stop poachers. And then the great cats are all in trouble. Almost all of them are in trouble. And tigers, very severely in trouble. The lion population now is down to 30,000 and plummeting still. There's a lot that we need to do, but I'm here to give you hope because there's a lot of hope in my book and there's a lot that's going on that is hopeful. It's just that I want to impress on you that every single voice, <coughs> like every single vote, every single one of you can make a difference. And what I would suggest is pick an animal that you really love and spark to and find an organization that is working to protect that animal Join that organization and work to save that one animal. I actually subscribe to 25 different organizations, but I have a very far-ranging interest in a lot of different species. I do have an appendix in my book, by the way, that's four pages long of organizations that I personally vouch for. 
if you're interested in ever looking at that appendix, and I put the mission statements in for these organizations, you can read what, what they're about, you can look them up online then, and you can find out if it's something that would be of interest to you. There was a little boy in one audience that I was in, and he said, I like the two-toed sloth. I said, well, guess what? There's an organization in Costa Rica that is protecting the two-toed sloth, and he's a very ha happy fellow now, this boy. This is the kind of thing I think we do. If we get enough people signing those petitions, they really, really make a difference. There are laws being written right now because so many people are petitioning that they be in force. And this is one of the exciting things about technology today. It's very great what's happening. What has it done to how we feel about the natural world to have so much of the virtual world with us all the time, looking at oh. things through screens? Well, thanks for asking that, Katie. Well, you know what it's done. <laughs> all of us are sitting there in front of our screens a lot, not the least of which the little kids. And it's very, very important, I feel. You, all, you may all be acquainted with Richard Love's book, Last Child in the Woods, and he talks about nature deficit disorder that is visited on children today because so few of them want to go outside. They really prefer the virtual reality. They really do love the games. We all love them. But if we're going to save the natural world, and we're saving the natural world for us, we're saving it for us as much as any other animal on Earth. Because when the natural world is healthy, then we're going to be healthy. So we have to get our young people more interested in it. And we have to begin to mentor them and take them outside. I mean, join an Audubon chapter. That's what I tell people, but I'm a birder. So you can join an Audubon chapter. And there's all kinds of programs for kids and families and walks and hikes and stuff. Or just take them outside and just introduce them and get them interested in wonder and tell them they have to leave their, their devices at home or in the car, for sure, because they can't do both. I think one of the best illustrations that you gave in the book was the difference between looking at the Serengeti on television and oh, then arriving for, there. Yes. Well, for me, no. Um, when I first went to Africa, I was with the Wildlife Conservation Society. I was a trustee at the time. This was back in the 90s, early 90s. And there were a number of us who took a trip over there as a 100th anniversary of the New York Zoological Society, Wildlife Conservation Society. And we came in through a cloud cover in a small single engine plane. We got broke through the cloud cover, and then we were right on the plains of the Serengeti. And I got out, and I could see nothing but animals. 360 degrees, 360 degrees. Giraffes browsing on acacia, elephants wa walking in the background to mud holes, hyenas, cheetahs chasing zebra. It was wondrous, astounding. And then it clicked on me. I said, oh my god, I have been looking at this all my life, photographs books, television, movies. My view of the world was only a, that much. It wasn't that much. 
Now, the Serengeti is very special because it is a plane that goes on forever. That's what it means in Swahili, I think. Serengeti means the, the land that goes on forever. And you can see forever. It's one of the few places on Earth. Uh, there's a lot of deserts, too, but this one has abundant animals. And it still does, although they are declining because the population of Africa is growing so fast that they estimate by 2100, one out of every two children in the world will be African. And this is putting enormous, enormous pressure on the megafauna of Africa today. You probably all know this, but the agricultural development is extant, and China has moved in and is making huge palm oil plantations and everything. And this is really putting pressure on the wildlife. So I think the Serengeti being a giant park, a lot of it will be still saved, and the animals will still be there. But it's extraordinary. The Pantanal is the other one that I mentioned earlier. The Pantanal is also an extraordinary area. It is also a kind of plain and wetland as well, and so that you can often see forever there as well. The Pantanal in Brazil. Is extinction inevitable for all of us? <laughs> yes, uh, of course it is. <laughs> of course it is. Uh, you know, we're considered one of the great mammals. We are one of the great mammals. We are the great mammal, right? But the large mammals of the world are the, the shortest lived, lived. We won't be around for more than 500,000 years. So that's a good long time. We can get a lot done. And um, <laughs> one of the wondrous things that I discovered, and I have it at, near the end of my book, is I live in Nova Scotia. and. About two years ago, suddenly, wave upon wave of tiny little glass marbles was rolling up onto the beaches for a mile around, we found out later. And sometimes they would pile up four inches thick. Well, upon investigating closer, they were not hard at all. They were gelatinous, like jellyfish. And inside was a perfectly beautiful little indigo blue tadpole-like creature. And I had no idea. Nobody seemed to know what the heck these, these were. The shorebirds were going crazy. They were on migration. It was September. Uh, the sanderlings jumped in and started eating them and loved them. But the, the semi-palmated plovers would put their faces in and then go like, ooh, that tastes awful. And they, they, wouldn't, they didn't do anything with them. But meanwhile, I was so intrigued by these perfectly beautiful little things that I picked them up off the beach, and I brought them inside in a clamshell, and I took pictures of them, one of which is in my book. And then I sent the pictures to the marine biologist in Dalhousie University in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And he said, oh, yes, that's a tunicate. A tunicate, I'd never, I didn't know what tunicates were. There's 150 species of tunicates, and they're very common, and some of them are huge, like this. They're called sea squirts, and the others are very tiny, and some of them form long chains in the ocean that can go for half a mile long, and others fly, uh, swim around singly. Then I called up the marine biologist who knows gelatinous marine mammals better than anyone, Larry Madden in Woods Hole Institute, and I sent him a picture, and he said, oh, yes, this is 
Thalia Democratica. And he said, guess what? The phylum, the category of this little creature, is chordata, just like human beings. Chordata, it had a spine and a nervous system, and they have been around for 500 million years. Now talk about connections, huh? The very last line of your book is, we are in this together. Why did you decide to end that way? We're in this together. We're on Earth together, all of us living creatures. And as the Pope said in, in his encyclical last year, he said, we have to go on faith. We're all interconnected. But sometimes we can't understand the connections that we have to the lowliest creatures. So we have to go on faith that they are important. We don't understand it yet. We're in it together. Jane Alexander, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Visit the donate page on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. All donations are reserved exclusively for the creation of audio content. Your financial support keeps us strong. Thank you.